Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Amen. Well, I always love when that song is played in a worship service, especially before the sermon, because that's what we've come to hear today. Uh, You haven't come to hear an inspiring talk, at least I hope that you haven't, because you're not necessarily going to get that. Um, You've come to hear the Word of God proclaimed. And my job as a preacher is to proclaim it as it has been delivered to us in God's Word. The Bible tells us that every word of God's Word is breathed out by God. Therefore, it comes to us with the same authority, the same truth, the same power as if Jesus Christ Himself were speaking these words to us because they have come from God. They're breathed out by Him. And so that is what we come to gather around to hear from His Word. Not my ideas, not the prevailing trends of the day, not what's making the newspaper headlines, although we might reference some of those things, especially as we're going through Habakkuk and acknowledging the the violence and the injustice in the world around us. But we come to hear how God's Word speaks truth to those things. And so with that understanding and with that admonition and encouragement from that song, I would invite you to turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, as we finish this little book we started a couple of months ago, Habakkuk chapter 3, as you're turning there, I'd I'd like you to imagine with me for a moment that after you leave the worship service this morning, that you head out uh, down North Cleveland Road and and get on I-64 and then take it down uh, a little ways east and, and then you take a right on the mountain parkway and as you travel down the mountain parkway, about the time you get around Clay City you'll start seeing some big uh, cutouts of Bigfoot along the, uh, the highway. Some of you all have seen those, you know who I'm talking about. And, and there at one of the Clay City exits, there's actually an advertisement for a Bigfoot hunt that they say they have every Saturday morning. They may have had one yesterday morning, I'm not sure. It might have uh, interfered with the Beer Cheese Festival over in Winchester, so they might not have done it, I don't know. But... But, but they advertise that every Saturday morning they have a hunt for Bigfoot there around Clay City. And while I imagine that nobody really goes out on that hunt with a great deal of optimism of actually seeing Sasquatch, I think they have a much better chance of finding Bigfoot on one of those Clay City hunts than you or I have of finding someone who feels good about our nation's economic outlook right now. You can't gather in a room with more than one other person and the conversation that you have not turn to the cost of gas, the cost of food, the cost of electricity, and so on. And the concern is very real. Some of you are living on pensions or fixed income. And you're facing significant decisions about what you're going to do, how you're going to spend your money. As I talk to people, I keep hearing over and over again that there's a 
uncertainty about what the future may hold. And if hard times or maybe we should say if harder times come, what will that look like for us? What decisions will need to be made when the material comforts that we're used to become more and more scarce or unaffordable and out of the reach of most folks? What sacrifices are we willing to make? These concerns are becoming for us more urgent, but they're not something that's new to the human experience. In fact, people in every generation have often had to face their own Famine times, times of want, times of hardship. Most of you know stories from your parents, or your grandparents who lived through the Great Depression. And you might even remember how they saved every bread tie that they ever had in that one drawer in the kitchen, you know, or, or how they would wash out and reuse Ziploc bags or sometimes even trash bags because they they grew up in an era of conservation because you didn't have much. And what you did have, you reused over and over again. During the Great Depression, a little 11-year-old girl wrote a letter to Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady at that time. And and I want to read to you what she wrote because it, it reveals to us the depths of need that people experienced during the Great Depression. She wrote to the First Lady, You know what I'm writing this letter for? I thought maybe you had some old clothes. You know, mother's a good sewer, and all the little girls are getting Easter dresses. And I thought that you had some. You know, Papa could wear Mr. Roosevelt's shirts and clothes. Sometimes we don't have anything, but we live. But you know, it's so hard to get cloth. So I thought maybe you had some. You know, what you thought was no good, mother can make over for me. I'm 11 years old. We have no car or no phone or radio. Papa, he would like to have a radio, but he said there are other things he needs more. Papa's worried about his seed oats. And one horse is not very good. But everyone has to worry. I'm sending this letter with the pennies I get to take to Sunday school. Mother gives me one each week, so it took me three weeks to save enough to send this letter. Now, most of us are probably a long way away from having to ask Jill Biden for her hand-me-downs at this point, right? But even if we are feeling the crunch a little bit, what happens when things start to get really bad? If things get really bad, what if our worst fears are realized? What if the economy crumbles around us? We face mass unemployment, Such questions aren't really hypothetical because Jesus told his followers to expect things to get worse and worse and worse before he returns. And the more that sin increases and abounds in our society, the the more injustice and violence spreads, then the less stable, the less secure our society becomes. We can't say with certainty what tomorrow will bring. But as we look to Habakkuk, we see that this prophet knew with exact certainty what he was facing. He knew that very soon invading Babylonian armies would come in and decimate the nation in which he lived. The survivors would be led away as captives into a strange and foreign land. 
He knew that God's wrath was about to fall on Judah. And knowing that, he wrote the song of praise that we're about to read to the Lord. Therefore, even as we face a yet uncertain future, we need to learn from Habakkuk how to prepare for whatever may come so that we can remain faithful even in the midst of famine times. Whether that famine comes as a result of the judgment of God, whether it's through natural causes, whether it's through incompetent leadership, whether it's through spiritual stagnation, whatever it is that we see drying up and causing the fruit to shrivel on the vines around us, we need to be prepared for it. So how do we prepare specifically? We need to prepare for hard times. We need to forsake material gain. And we need to rejoice in the Lord. And we'll see that as we stand together to read Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. There God's prophet writes, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail And the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. And there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's once more turn, in the Lord to pray, turn to the Lord in prayer. God, we are thankful for your word. And as we consider it this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand it well. So that it may teach and instruct and prepare our hearts for the troublesome days ahead. Lord, we don't know what those days may bring. But we know that before you come, before you return... Until that trumpet sounds, Lord, things will continue to get worse and worse. We're seeing just some of that now. And already, Lord, we admit that it's difficult. Lord, help us to wait. To trust in you as Habakkuk does. Let us learn the lessons from this text that will sustain us. In fact, even grow our faithfulness as we face famine times ahead. And Lord, if there's someone here who has not yet trusted in you this morning, or if there's someone here who is claiming to trust in you, and yet they're continuing to put their trust in material goods and success as the world measures it, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to repentance. And that all of us would leave here today with a greater trust, a greater conviction in your sustaining hand. Lord, let us be resolved to trust in you, come what may. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
as we begin reading this passage, first Habakkuk teaches us to prepare for hard times. In verse 16, he describes here a very real, visceral, physical response to the judgment that he knows is about to fall on his people. He trembles, he tells us. His lips quiver, rottenness enters his bones. This is he, he aches within his body as he considers what the judgment of God is going to look like. I would just say when you begin to understand, when you begin to wrap your mind around what the wrath of God entails, it causes you to tremble. It is truly a fearful thing to experience the wrath of God. And Habakkuk knows that he and his neighbors and his family and all the people that he loves, they are about to experience that wrath firsthand. Everyone from the priests in the temple to the servants in the field, they're going to experience the wrath of God falling on Judah. And it is a fearful thing. And so this is an appropriate response as Habakkuk considers all that that's going to entail, what that's going to mean for, for his life, for those that he knows. The wrath of God is not something that we should take lightly. As a matter of fact, one of my pet peeves, one of the things that just really burns me up because people don't know when they're talking about is if you're watching a a movie or a television show and one bad guy says to another bad guy, "I'll, I'll see you in hell. Or someone tells someone else to go to hell. There are no more terrible three words that you can string together in a sentence. Because that tells me you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the depths of the curse that you're invoking on that person. You don't understand hell. Hell is the fullest and most extreme manifestation of God's wrath. Prepared, we're told, for Satan and his demons. It is where the wrath of God will be justly and righteously poured out against sin for all eternity, with no end, with no relief, with no drop of cool water for your tongue. The very thought of it should make our legs tremble and rottenness to enter our bones. Trembling in that way would put us in good company because the thought, the very thought of the wrath of God made Jesus himself tremble. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, knowing what was about to happen to him on the next day, he went with his disciples to pray. And we're given this account in Luke, 24, or Luke chapter 22, verses 41 through 44. It says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now that should tell us all we need to know about the wrath of God. The fact that there was an angel 
from heaven in the presence of Jesus comforting him. And he was still in that moment in such great agony that the blood vessels around his sweat glands burst, causing him to sweat drops of blood. It's an actual medical condition called hematidrosis. It results from extreme anguish and agony. And Jesus had a very had an angel sent from God to comfort him, and he was still under that much agony because he knew he understood better than any of us what the wrath of God entailed. And he knew he was about to experience it. If a sinner could see into hell for one second, for one second, they would sweat drops of blood. Because they know that that's what's waiting for them. Their knees would tremble. Rottenness would enter their bones. As Habakkuk said. As they fathom the unimaginable consequences of their sin. Jesus understood. And he sweat drops of blood because of it. He knew he was going to experience the wrath of God. That all the agony, all the suffering that I myself would have experienced for an eternity in hell for all of my uncountable sins. Jesus knew he was about to experience that for me in the span of a few hours. And then multiply that by billions because it wasn't just for me, but it was for all of you and all those that would trust In his saving power, he was enduring God's wrath in payment for their sins. That's what he was anticipating. But like Habakkuk, he knew and he trembled, yet he prepared. He prepared. What does Habakkuk say? Habakkuk says, Yet I will wait quietly for the punishment of my enemies. I will wait quietly for God's plan to play out. Just as Jesus prayed in that moment, Lord, nevertheless, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Both Habakkuk and our Lord Jesus prepared themselves for the hard time by committing to trust in the Lord's plan. Habakkuk says, I will wait quietly. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. They committed themselves to trusting in the Lord. Yet we, when we think about preparing for for hard times, we try to prepare in other ways. Shortly after Lauren and I were married, I I watched a television show one night about how people were building bunkers under their houses and, and storing up food and ammunition to prepare for some impending natural disaster. Some of them believe that there's a nuclear war coming. Some of them believe maybe a a EMP would knock out the electric grid and we'd be on our own and debit cards would be no good and some people believe that there'd be war. Whatever apocalypse, pick your poison. And I thought, man, that, that's a good idea. I need to do that. And so I went out to Walmart the next week and bought a 50-pound bag of rice right, and some, some flour and sugar and some things. We were going to start stocking up. Let me tell you, it took us years to eat that bag of rice. We, we moved that sucker to Savannah with us. And I think we celebrated whenever we boiled the last grain of that 50-pound bag of rice. But let me tell you, that's, that's that's not how 
Habakkuk is preparing for hard times here. Yes, there, there may be some wisdom in having some supplies on hand, right? That's why people learn to can food, prepare and put things up for the winter months. There's wisdom to that. Proverbs extols that. But, but notice, as Habakkuk's facing these hard times, he doesn't say that he's going to reinforce his walls, that he's going to buy extra arrows for his bow, that he's going to st- store up food. No, he knows exactly what's coming. And his preparation for that day, he says, I'm going to wait quietly for God's promises to be kept. He's entrusting himself to the Lord. Jesus, in the passage we just read, he knows what's coming. He knows what the next day will bring. Yet, he doesn't say, he doesn't come to his disciples and say, okay, I want you all to, to, to gather up all the swords and get ready to defend me because they're coming. No, he rebukes his disciples when they do that. He makes his preparations by resolving to trust the Father's plan. We too make preparations for hard times, not by storing up food and ammunition and all those things, but by committing now to trust the Lord. By saying, Lord, I don't know what tomorrow has in store for me, but I know that you're going to be right there with me. I know that you're going to lead me through it. And even if it claims my life, even if it claims my bank account, even if it claims whatever, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. That's the example that we see in Scripture, both from Habakkuk and from Jesus. But in the next point, we see how far Habakkuk is willing to take that trust by forsaking material gain. Now, verses 17 through 19 here in Habakkuk, are some of the most remarkable verses in the entire Bible. And if I'm honest, I've been waiting for months since we started this book, and even before then, to be able to share these verses with you. And now here we are. Habakkuk makes an inventory of some of the most precious items to life and well-being in his society. Talks about figs and fruit, the things that would have been used to sweeten and enrich life and produce desserts and and wine and all of those things. He talks about olives that would have been used for oil, one of the most staple products of that society. He talks about the crops and the livestock that would have been used for food and for milk and for meat. And Habakkuk says, even if all of these things are stripped away, if all of these things are taken away from us, He says, I will still rejoice in the Lord. This is what faithfulness in the midst of famine looks like. This is what true faith looks like. You see, true faith doesn't lose hope if there's not food in the pantry or gas in the car. Because our faith was never predicated on receiving those things in the first place. Our faith is placed on God, in God and on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's where our faith is placed. Not whether or not we receive material blessings. In fact, throughout most of history, God's people have not experienced a great deal of material blessings. In fact, if we look around the world outside the borders of our own nation, most of God's people in foreign lands 
do not have the material blessings that we have. Many of them are persecuted, hunted down. Many of them live in mud huts with dirt floors. And they're God's children as well. And they trust Him. They wake up, they woke up this morning trusting Him. Just as much, if not more, than you or I did. Because their faith is not based upon the material blessings that they have. And so Habakkuk here says, Lord, you can take it all away. And I'm still going to trust in you. I'm still going to trust in you. We need to be willing to forsake these things. Let them go now. Resolve in your mind that whatever you have, you don't have it. Let it go in your mind now because it will be easier when the day comes that it might be taken away from you. And if it is all taken away, we need to look around and say, so what? That's what Paul does. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 8-10, through 10, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Paul says, count everything as loss. Count it all as loss, as rubbish, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Listen, it's not that these things aren't good. Right? It's not that it's not that having a house is a bad thing or having a car is a bad thing or having nice clothes is a bad thing or having a pantry with food in it is a bad thing. No, those things aren't bad in in and of themselves. It's just that compared to knowing Jesus, those things are rubbish. They're nothing. They're nothing. If a tree falls on your car tonight, what have you really lost? Do you have a nice home? What if it, heaven forbids, what if it burns to the ground? If I'm honest, that's always been one of my biggest fears. Right? Something that, that, that would be the worst case scenario in my mind. About two months ago, Lauren and I have some dear friends that we made in Savannah and they've moved elsewhere. And, and about two months ago, those fears were realized for them. Their house caught fire and they were barely able to escape with their lives and the lives of their four children that are very close in age to my own children. And the morning after, the very morning after, their house burned to the ground and they lost every material thing that they owned. Amanda, the the wife, wrote this on Facebook. She said, as our family begins to rise up from the ashes, we know that God is holding us in his hands. While we dust off the soot, slowly glue the pieces of life back together and begin to mend our hearts. I want to share who our God is with you. And she goes on to say and explain our God is merciful. Our God is all powerful. Our God is gracious. Our God is love. Our God is Emmanuel. And under each heading, she explains how God has sustained them through all of this. 
How would you respond in that situation? Can you say like Habakkuk that though the fig tree does not blossom, you will still praise the Lord? Though your house burns to the ground, you will still rejoice in Him? The section of Scripture is incredible. It's an affirmation of Habakkuk's faithfulness in the face of the loss of all material gain. But there's a lesson here I think that we can apply to the church as well. Will we be faithful as a church even during famine times? Even when it seems like success is fleeting? When there's not large crowds gathering? How do we measure success? Do we have to have more kids at VBS this year than we did last year in order for it to be considered a success? Do we have to meet a threshold of a certain number of souls being saved or a certain amount of money in our bank accounts in order for us to feel good about where the church is going? See, it's very easy to fall into the trap because those things are measurable. It, it, it seems like the things that we can look at and say, well, well, yes, this is going up and these numbers are good and so we can measure these things and that looks good. But all the measurable Things that Habakkuk can point to here, he says, Lord, even if all those things are gone, I'm still going to praise you. I'm still going to pursue faithfulness. How will we continue to praise the Lord, to continue to demonstrate faithfulness, to pursue long and steadfast and patient growth in our own lives and the lives of one another, even when it appears that we're going through a time of famine? Even if we would be delighted to bring in more abundant spiritual harvests. We need to be satisfied in the Lord and in who He is. Whether He blesses or whether He withholds blessing. (coughs) And so we need to forsake material goods and material gain. But finally we see from Habakkuk. The last lesson to learn from this book. Perhaps the most important. Is that come what may, we need to rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk says that even even if everything is stripped away, even if it's all taken away, even if he loses all things, even in the midst of famine, spiritual famine, economic famine, whatever it may be, he will still rejoice in the Lord. He will still take delight in the God of his salvation. He says, the Lord is my strength. The crops, they're not my strength. The the herds out in the stalls, they're not my strength. My house, that's not my strength. This nation that I'm living in, that's not my strength. The Lord God is my strength. He is the one. He is the one that elevates my soul. He's the one that makes my my feet like the deer's. It's it's amazing. It's almost as if Habakkuk's saying, I I can walk lightly. I, I I can dance without a care in the world. He puts me on high places, not because of what I have, but because of who he is, because he is my God and my salvation. My question for you this morning is this. What? What thing, if it were taken away from you, would cause you to lose your joy? 
What thing, if, if, if you have it now and you suddenly don't have it tomorrow, what is that thing that you would say that's the line that if that were taken away, I would lose my joy? Now, for the Christian, and I'll admit this is a tough pill to swallow, but I think that your answer should be nothing. There shouldn't be anything in our life that you say, if I lose this thing, I lose my joy. Habakkuk here admits he cannot lose his joy because his joy is rooted in God. And God will never leave him nor forsake him. God will remain the same today, tomorrow, and forever. Habakkuk stands to lose everything else. You know, he's in a very different situation from us. We're wondering how bad things may get. Habakkuk knows how bad things are going to get. He knows that it looks like Israel ceasing to exist as a nation. There will be no king, no descendant of David left on the throne. Those that survive the onslaught will be led away as slaves into captivity. He knows that's what's coming. We're just a little uncertain. But Habakkuk says, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Everything that had provided Pleasure and security for him will soon be gone. Yet he says, I will praise the Lord and he will take joy in the God of his salvation. That can never, ever be taken away from him. And if that's where your joy and where your confidence is this morning, it doesn't matter what the sign out in front of Shell says. It doesn't matter how much you have to pay for a chicken leg. Because your joy isn't rooted in those things. Your joy is rooted in the God of your salvation. Perhaps the greatest example of suffering in the entire Bible, aside from Jesus himself, was Job. Job, you may remember, lost everything. His his servants, his livestock, his wealth, his health, and even, sadly, his own children. And yet, in the aftermath of all of this, what does Job do? In Job 1, we read these words. It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What would take away your joy if you lost it? Your home? That would be a tough blow. To be sure. Devastating. What about your car? Your job? Your marriage? A child? Even as I say these things, I know there are some of you in this room that have lost all of those things. There's people that have lost children. There's people that have lost marriages. There's people that have lost homes, cars, jobs, whatever else. And listen, I don't want to minimize those losses one bit because those losses are devastatingly painful. And the Bible tells us that as believers, when we see brothers and sisters losing those things, we need to come alongside them and we need to wrap our arms around them and we need to to weep with them. But ultimately, our joy is not based on those things. And losing those things should not ultimately steal our joy or our ability to rejoice in 
God because if they do, it might reveal that we never really found our joy in God himself, but in the things that he gave us. Job knew the difference. Habakkuk knew the difference. Do we? I hope that you do this morning, and I hope that you're looking to God alone for your joy. Because if you find your joy in the Lord, the good news is it can never, ever be taken away from you. No matter how awful things become in this world. And this is the example, once more, that Jesus himself set for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the author tells us that this is what should motivate our faithful perseverance. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the... What? The joy, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Jesus prayed in the garden, as he sweat those drops of blood, he despised the cross. But he was looking forward to the joy that he knew that he was going to experience. And and what was that joy? Ultimately, it was what he accomplished on the cross. It was the salvation of your soul. Jesus endured the wrath of God. He agonized. He sweat drops of blood, despising its shame for the joy that was set before him. And his joy is setting out in this congregation this morning. Jesus was looking forward to an eternity with you. To the praise of God's glory. And the author says that we should look to his example and run our own race with endurance, come what may. And so I invite you today to rejoice. We're about to sing in in just a moment, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And, And what a wonderful song to conclude the book of Habakkuk with because ultimately, God's great faithfulness is what sustains us. We can rejoice We can rejoice, come what may, in who the Lord is. Not in what He gives us, but who He is. If you do not know Him, then I would invite you to do this morning what the author of Hebrews says, to to lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Maybe you've never trusted in Him. You've been too busy finding your joy in other things. And you've realized that your trust isn't in the Lord, but it's in what he gives you. I would encourage you this morning to come even as we sing and repent of your misplaced trust. And trust in the Lord alone. Perhaps you've been taking too much joy even in material things, even as a believer. Perhaps you've been too motivated by the successes that this world measures that you've neglected faithfulness, I would invite you to come. Confess. Repent. Commit to the Lord this morning to pursue Him. Pursue Him above all else. Even as our bank accounts shrink. Even as food becomes more and more scarce. Even as we have to make sacrifices in our day-to-day lives. Commit this morning to pursuing the Lord.
faithful Lord, even as we sing about His great faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we are so thankful for who You are. Lord, yes, we we delight in Your good gifts. We delight in the things that You provide us. But Lord, that isn't where our hope is rooted. Our hope isn't rooted in Your blessings, but in the source of those blessings, You. And the fact, O Lord, that You have delighted to redeem a people, to go to the cross, to endure the wrath of the Father for our sake. Because ultimately, Lord, You were looking forward in hope and in joy to the salvation of souls that would be accomplished by Your sacrificial and atoning death. I pray, Lord, that You would Fulfill that joy by saving souls this morning. Lord, that that you would bring someone else into the fold so that they might know the joy that you can supply. The joy that comes from knowing you and knowing you alone. Lord, let us forsake all the trappings of this world. All the things that this world entices us to love instead of you. And let us resolve as individuals and as a church to love you above all else because you are faithful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.